may know this about me, but before um, I became a baby-making machine, I... <laughs> I was um, a film student, and I worked on film sets, and I was an aspiring screenwriter. And um, about 10 years ago, I was sitting in the hallway at school waiting for one of my crazy film classes to start, and I really profoundly felt like the Lord told me to write um, a screenplay on the life of David. And um, I was like, but I'm a girl, you know. <laughs> and um, But it was it was this really fun journey actually getting to know and getting into uh, who he was. And, um, and every year it kind of comes back up and I, it's almost in the past 10 years, every year, there's always a season where, uh, I kind of revise and go back through. And, um, anyway, so now I'm here and I'm a mommy and I'm no longer doing spectacular, glamorous things. I think the last movie I worked on was a sci-fi movie called Mongolian Deathworm. Yeah. Um, I'm in the credits. I'm in the credits. Um, but uh, last year, uh, David, uh, it kind of came back up for me. Um, we're kind of, in our house, we're kind of fans of watching movies and series. So, you know, it's like, so uh, like every year we watch Lord of the Rings, which we're actually in the middle of. I told Vince, I was so compelled to actually like introduce this whole thing in like the voice of Galadriel and, you know, make it very epic and sweeping and look at you all like this. Um, but uh uh, yeah, and those are the extended editions, which are like four hours, which take us like two weeks to watch because we have kids, so we can't start till after they go to bed. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really fun. But this year, we um, we started ahead. We waited until later in the year because we wanted to watch the Hobbit movies because something I learned from last year is that when you watch kind of the backstory, it gives something you've seen before original weight, which brings me to Star Wars. Um <laughs> I'm just up here to geek out, okay? And you guys have to listen to all my all my fun, nerdy theories. Um, but last year, I for Christmas, so, so we do a sequel, all these series. Last year for Christmas, I got Jeremy the entire series of Star Wars on Blu-ray. And so we were like, let's go through these all in a row in Jan- last January. And um, there, was something, there was something that, I mean, aside from the prequels, but there's something about the prequels and then watching the three original movies that I'd grown up seeing... Um, two very important things stood out to me. Um, watching and knowing Vader's backstory gave the original movies more emotional weight. So like this time when you saw like, I was like, oh God, you know, it's like, you're just, you're like, you were left weeping over like the fall that he had. And then, you know, you see him again and it's not just like this scary bad guy. It's actually somebody who has a life story and has a history. Um, and the second thing I noticed was that, um, the story of Anakin, who was Darth Vader, mirrored that of Luke, who came after him. Um, And you'll notice in the coming weeks, much of David's life, similarly, will mirror that of Saul, who went before him. Um, David and Saul were both gifted and anointed and had the potential to wield much power, but they were defined by the choices that they made. They were both given the same gifts, the same anointing, but they handled it separately. So today, I actually wanted to talk about Saul because at the time there'd only been one other king. And so to understand the impact and the importance of who David was, you have to really know what came before him and, the, and how that played out. <clears throat> so here we go. We're going to be hanging out in 1 Samuel today for all you Bible readers. Um, but uh, so the people wanted a king. The people want a king, okay? They've left, they left Egypt. They're in the promised land. And at the time, everything's being ruled by judges 
which are basically prophets. So Samuel's the prophet. He's ruling everything. His sons are like minor judges underneath him, which in all fairness, they weren't doing a very good job. They, it says that they weren't as, you know, devout. They were taking bribes. And the people were like, this is terrible. And they were like, our solution is we want what they have. We want, what every, we want a king because everybody else has that. And it's working so well for everybody else. Um, so Samuel, being awesome, uh, inquires of the Lord. Um, and I, and I want to point out, like when the people came to Samuel, they weren't like, we want a new king and we want this guy. Saul didn't ask to be king. Okay. Saul was chosen by God. Okay. Let that sink in a minute. When the people of Israel asked, God looked through the entire nation, through every single person and said, this is the man that I want. He chose him. He was the choice, the, the, the best choice that God found at that time. God does not set us up for failure. He wasn't setting him up to set an example. He was actually looking for a king. Um, and poor Saul at the time was just out looking for his lost donkey. <laughs> Who hasn't been there, right? <laughs> anyway, so starting at 1 Samuel 9, um, it describes Saul. He was the most handsome man in Israel. He was son of a wealthy and influential man from the tribe of Benjamin. And it mentions a lot of times that he was taller than everybody else because that apparently was very important. Um, he was an obedient son. He was loved by his father. I mean, just it's, it's, it says several times that he was loved by his father. Um, so he was just a really, really handsome farm boy. So he was John Eckert. Okay, so Saul is out searching for the lost donkey with his servant, and they've spent several days, and at this point, Saul's like, my dad's going to be more worried about us than the donkey at this point, so I think we should go home. And the servant's like, hey, let's go see the seer. We'll go see Samuel, and maybe he can tell us where our donkey is. So they decide to go find Samuel. And right here in 1 Samuel 9.17, it says what happens when they're kind of, they kind of meet on the road. Samuel sees him and says, <clears throat> uh, Samuel caught sight of Saul, and the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So Samuel ends up saying to Saul, Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you're to eat with me. And in the morning I will send you on your way, and you will tell all that what was in your heart. As for the donkey, or I will tell you all that is in your heart. Yeah, he's going to tell him everything. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, don't worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? them some words. (laughs) And then you have Saul's reaction. He says, but I am, am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest tribe of Israel and is not my clan the least of all these clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? And I think earmark that. Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant to the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about 30 in number. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. Um, so Saul's reply to who he is is very humble. You know, it's, it's, he does, obviously doesn't think very much of himself, but it almost seems like, you know, that's the kind of king you want. You want somebody that's, you know, willing to say, you know, yes, Lord, or yes, prophet, I'm just, I'm just a mere man. Um, and then he's taken to Saul's house where he's given the best piece of meat. He's, you know, put at the head of the table in front of all these people that, you know, probably are leaders who regularly eat with Samuel. And, 
are thinking, you know, who's the handsome nobody that's now the honored guest? So he's already kind of sort of put on a platform. Um, And then the next morning, Samuel takes him out to the edge of the city. He sends the servant along and says, so you're going to be king. And it says that he anoints him right there. And Saul must have been pretty skeptical because he gives him like the next like three paragraphs of prophetic things that are going to happen on his way home. So he will understand and know that he is king. <laughs> like this is going to happen. This person's going to say this to you and then they're going to have a donkey, but it's going to be lame and it's going to have a, you know. And so <laughs> you can see, you can see that I can imagine Samuel may be feeling like he needs to give Saul more information that he, you know, more prophetic confirmation because I can imagine Saul's face probably like, I'm sorry, what? Because he wasn't, again, he was just a farm boy. First um, Samuel 10, 6, uh, Samuel says to Saul, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will become a different person. And then first Samuel 10, 9 says, God gave Saul a new heart. Again, God was not setting Saul up for failure. He gave him all the things that he would need in order to lead and rule and be king and is basically telling him, you are king. This is who you are. So Saul heads home. All the prophetic stuff happens exactly as he did. And then even as Saul gets home, he sees some prophets from his hometown and he just begins to prophesy to them. Spirit comes upon him heavily and he starts to prophesy and they marvel and they're like, oh my gosh, what, who, Saul's a prophet too. Because back then, it wasn't like, you may all prophesy. It was, you know, I'm a prophet. I tell things that people don't know about. Then they're like, wow, you knew that. And what I find interesting also is that um, Saul doesn't tell anybody what happened to him. He goes back to his fields, which will remind you of somebody else. He doesn't tell his father. He meets his uncle when he gets home. He doesn't tell the servant. Nobody knows but Saul what has transpired between him and the prophet. So in order to announce the king, Samuel calls everybody from like all of Israel to come to this big procession. And you know they must have all traveled for days because it says there was a lot of baggage. And you don't pack a suitcase for a day trip unless you have a newborn. So there's just, there's, you know, people have come from near and far, traveled to come to this. And... Um, they actually, they take, they take lots to see, you know, which family it's going to be. And they end up with the, you know, the Benjaminites and they start, you know, bringing every family before Samuel in front of all of Israel, which I feel like would have taken a really long time. But by the time the last family that comes before them is Saul's family. And so they bring Saul's family. I mean, I'm thinking stage because well, duh, but so Saul's family is brought up in front of everybody and Samuel's like, and the king is. Saul, and he's not there. This is awkward. And he was so hidden that it says they had to actually ask the Lord where to find him. And Saul was hiding in the baggage. Remember all that baggage that everybody brought with him? He was hidden there and was apparently not coming out, even though people were probably like, and Saul, anybody, is he in the bathroom? No. Okay. Still nothing. So, I mean, I can imagine it probably took hours to find him. So they bring him out. They pronounce him king. And um, it even says that there are, are men that refuse to bring Saul tribute. And at this time, Saul's 30 years old. 
as a 30-year-old man hiding in the baggage, I'm reminded of his response to what he said about himself when he, was, when he first met Samuel, that I don't th- he doesn't believe that he's king. He's been anointed. His heart's been changed. He's been given all the tools that he needs. And yet, I think that he's making a decision based upon fear. And I don't know how many of you have been given a prophetic word or someone's been like, this is who you are. This is what you have to do. And then you get to the point where it's like sink or swim. And you're like, all I can hear are the reasons why this is a really bad idea. And I feel like that's where Saul was. Um, so Saul then goes back again to the fields. And um, at the time, a battle started brewing in Jabesh. People's eyes were being gouged out. It was a bad deal. Um, and uh, Saul hears about it from back in his father's house in the fields. He's king, but yet he's still with the ox, oxen. So when he hears about war, Samuel comes to him, and he and Samuel go to war together. The prophet and the king. Um, they, they, conquer, they conquer this battle. They go in. Saul shows himself mighty and you know, crushes everybody else. And it's the first time where all the people in Israel are like, oh, he's king. It's just a, you know, a kingdom forged through tribulation. And they take him back to Gilgal and host a big celebration. And at this time, Samuel gives uh, Saul a warning. 1 Samuel 12, now here's the king you have chosen, the one you have asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if, you, if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. So that's pretty cut and dry. Obey, king. Do not obey, bad, right? Okay, we're good. And then just to make a point, he calls down rain from heaven. Um, in the Talmud, it, likes to, it says that um, Samuel actually reigned with Saul for several years, um, like two, I think about two years following that, which I think is important because you, you learn that um, they had time to really grow in affection for one another. I think Samuel had a really a deep affection for Saul because he essentially raised him into kinghood. Um, you know, taught him what to do because he had been the leader at the time. Um, so Saul goes to war with the Philistines, kind of like count their lives by the wars that they fought. So this is, you know, this is the first Philistine war. Um, and Samuel says he'll be there in seven days. And so Saul is sitting there with all of his men and everyone's kind of freaking out a little bit. He says he'll be there in seven days. He's not there. He's late. And there's no word from him to of where he's, you know, when he's coming or what's going to happen. And Saul's, Saul's forces, his, his army around him, because the prophet has not shown up, they're kind of freaking out. And they've all fled. He's down to about 600 men against all the Philistine army. Um, they're nervous. They're hiding in caves. And Saul is trying his best to keep things together. But he's kind of new at this at the time. Um, And so Saul decides to make the executive decision to sacrifice before the Lord. And in his defense, I think that he was trying, he was like, we obviously cannot go to war without inquiring of the Lord. And so I will step up and I will do it because I'm, you know, I'm going to be a holy man and I'm going to, you know, follow, 
try and follow what I can and make the best out of a make, you know, lemonade with lemons, you know. Um, but he was actually bowing to the will of the men. I think it's another case of the fact that he was in fear. He's worried about the fact that his numbers are depleting. He's trying to look for a way to make, to, to make the men happy. And so he's kind of bowing to the will of men in this moment. Um, Samuel arrives and he rebukes Saul for what he's done. Um, it's possible that it could have been minutes after, you know, the sacrificing or, you know, it all began. Um, but the importance of what happens here is Saul decides to rationalize as opposed to repent. He begins to explain himself and explain his fear and explain the reasons that he did what he did. And I feel like it's the first step where you see Saul the king becoming Saul the politician. First Samuel 13, 13 says that at that moment, Samuel says to him, your kingdom will end. God has already begun looking for a man after his own heart. God and Samuel don't remove Saul from his place, but he just informs him that his line will not go further than him. Um, so obviously they've still got a battle that they have to fight. So Saul responds with his head again because he's just been, you know, he's just been rebuked and he's a little bit sore. And so trying to make up for his blunder and, you know, and try to make a, you know, a disappointed God and not wanting to disappoint him. Saul starts to grow more and more rigid to try and appease God in his own strength. He forbids all of his army from eating, makes them all fast. Before they're about to go in and wage war against numbers that are much greater than theirs, he's like, no one should eat at all. Because he, and he's like, he's, like, he's like, anyone that eats will be under sin, and that will cause sin will come upon us. And so he's starting to create new rules, some religious things that are, are completely within his rights as king to do but they weren't necessarily wisdom or necessary other than the fact that he's trying to create his own righteousness. Um, oh, Jonathan. <clears throat> I think Jonathan would have made a great king. But uh, so Jonathan, Jonathan enters the scene. He's young. He's heroic. He kind of, him and his armor bearer, he just kind of grabs him. And he's like, we're going to go scout everything out. And, you know, he tells the Lord, you know, I'm not going to go up there and fight them unless they say this exact phrase. And he gets over there and they say that exact phrase. And so he and his armor bearer attack. They killed 20 men across a field. Just like, I mean, it's just a total like Legolas moment. You know what I mean? Can you imagine that? Just him and the guy that like, they just walk through and it's just 20 men are dead. It says that right then an earthquake happens. Cool. And all the Philistines start freaking out because the, the, it happens and they like run out to where the field is. They see all these like bodies strewn everywhere and then they start like attacking each other. And even this uh, people group called the Hebrews that were, you know, Israelites that were in their, their territory who had been forced to fight for them revolt and start fighting against them. And so there's all this infighting craziness that's going on. Um, and Jonathan, so he's... He's the hero of the day. He's basically started everyone over there kind of killing themselves for Israel. You're welcome. He's understandably tired. He heads back into camp. You know, it says that he takes his spear. He dips in it a little bit of honey and he eats it. He hasn't heard about what his dad's whole big new rule is. And someone's like, dude, you know, if you eat that, you get, you die. And so Saul, it, but, it, but something about like Jonathan right here is it says that he, when he tasted he felt immediately refreshed, which I think is important to say because of the fact that I think it was a dumb rule. And it even says that Jonathan's like, that's a dumb rule. 
<laughs> um, Saul is so, so rigid at this point. When he learns that Jonathan eat the bin of, had eaten the honey, he condemns him to death. So Jonathan's just basically saved everybody's butts, and he's the hero of the day. But Saul is so, he, I, mean, I can only imagine that what that scene must have looked like, where Saul's just like, all right, well, I got to do this. I got to do it. And everybody's like, you really don't have to. And he's like, I got to do it. And, and so his, his advisors and the people were like, don't kill Jonathan. He kind of just saved us. And he's, we're fine. We're fine if you don't. You know, but Saul is so thinking, this is, I have to please the Lord this way. But they all talk him down from killing his own son whom he loves and who just saved everyone. Um, So Saul's relying on this outward appearance of morality to make up for his lack. He feels inadequate. He's been rebuked. And he keeps trying to earn what's already been given to him. So you have this first rebuke from Samuel, which is very, sounds very similar to what happens next when, um, Saul faces the Amalekites. Um, Samuel goes to Saul and says, this is the word of the Lord. You are supposed to kill everything, everyone. The cattle, women, children, everything. Um, And the word of the Lord is on it. So Saul goes in, he's victorious, but he decides to keep the good stuff. So whatever he believes will add wealth to the treasury is what it says. So... Again, what's going to make him look good to everybody is keeping the best of what the best, you know, all, all the spoils. It says anything that was not spoiled. They killed all the, all the bad stuff, but then there's like, there's some really good sheep and some stuff that, that will add and make, you know, Israel more illustrious and make people understand that we are the, we're the, we're the biggest and we're the best in the world. And um, Samuel arrives, who's late again. Um. But I think it's possible because God said, was, he was busy hearing from God. God says to Samuel before he even gets there, I'm sorry I ever made Saul king. He has not been loyal to me and has not obeyed my command. Which I find odd because all Saul's trying to do is please God. He's, he's working every angle he can. I mean, that guy's barely sleeping trying to create new rules to make God happy. Except for whatever the one thing is that God wants him to do. So he's like, he's like, I kept this stuff and I, you know, I'm making people fast. And, but God's like, I, but the one thing. Um, so after, when Samuel is delayed, Saul again takes things into his own hands and goes ahead and makes a sacrifice. And it says that um, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel where he has set up a monument in his own honor. Changing. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Now I'd like to point out, in my house, when it gets really quiet, I go, Judah, and he runs out and goes, I wasn't doing anything. And he's like standing right in front of the couch where he likes to crouch behind and eat things that he's taken from the pantry. It's probably not true. And so I'm like, I I see this and I hear Saul going, I didn't do anything. I've done everything the Lord asked. Don't look over there. 
Um, golly. I can imagine at that moment, Samuel's looking at Saul. And at this point, Saul's been king for many years. He's, he's battle-worn. And he looks perfectly polished. He's the image of a king. But he's actually fully now become the politician. And um, the next thing Samuel in, 15, in 1 Samuel 15, 17, Samuel says to Saul, Although you may think little of yourself... I will not go back with you. In that moment, he's looking at Saul and he sees the king and he sees the politician, the perfect polished man, but he knows that he's still the 30-year-old who's stuck in the baggage hiding. He's still a man who does not believe what has been said about him, what has been told to him, and who he is supposed to be. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you. So during the rest of this conversation, which is, I mean, just so powerful to read and imagine the emotions, the interesting thing about getting to write a screenplay and the way that I've studied through is not necessarily verse by verse, but it's scene by scene, line by line, and trying to examine the motivation of why, why these men and women did what they did. Like, why did they make those choices? Why did they say those words? Like, what, is, what was the heart and what was the driving factor behind where everything came from. And the entire time that Samuel is trying to basically rebuke him, you see Saul keep changing his tactics. He, he, he's, he's moving and trying to, you know, be the politician in that moment. Um, he, he, he starts by, you know, by, by rationalizing and kind of defending himself like this is, well, this is why I did this. And then Samuel says to him, you know, as you've rejected the word of the Lord, so he has rejected you as king. So then Saul switches, starts begging forgiveness, and he's like, yes, I've sinned. I was afraid of the people. But again, he's still trying to perform. He becomes a king on his knees, willing to do whatever it takes to make everything look like it should. Is it true repentance? Repentance means being sorry for what you did and turning and changing your heart. And he was not willing to do that. He was not willing to lose face. Desperate people living on the opinions of man are absolutely terrified of losing face. They will do whatever it takes because they do not understand who they are and they don't understand the love that they, how loved they are. When Saul realizes that Samuel is leaving, he knows he can't go, to back, go back to camp without the prophet. So now he's, he's really fighting to, to save face before all of his leaders, his elders. If he goes back there without Samuel, they're going to know something's wrong because they know that he's arrived. He's truly desperate. And that's the point where Samuel goes to leave him and he tears Samuel's cloak. You see this escalate through this entire process. He starts the confident man. He's going to go ahead and he's going to pretend like everything's okay. He's going to rationalize. Then he's going to apologize. And then you see when Samuel starts to leave and he realizes that he could actually lose face, that he starts to get so desperate, so frantic that he just lunges. And I don't think that he intended to rip his cloak. I think it was an act of absolute desperation. Saul's prime motivation is fear, which brings me back to Star Wars. 
you, I mean, if you've ever watched the movies, it keeps it says over and over and over again that um, Darth Vader or Anakin, as he's growing up, is the most powerful. Like he's he's got so much in him, as long as he does not succumb to fear. And I mean, he has different things in his life that you could rationalize and say, you know, he has a right to feel this way. But at the same time, he let it be the thing that motivates him rather than the thing that he overcomes. First Samuel 1530, Saul completely has, has given up really any, really any pretense with Samuel. He says, come back with me and honor me before the elders and the people to worship the Lord, your God. He's just kind of given up at this point. Come lend me your credibility is what he's saying. And in the end, Samuel goes with him, but only because King Agag still lives. Who knows? Maybe it was a political ploy in the pocket of Saul to keep the king alive because it would be his only last-ditch effort to get Samuel back to the camp if he did get in trouble. We don't know. But it says that Samuel walks up, kills Agag, drops the dagger, and walks away. But that also is the last time that he would ever see Saul. And the word says that he would constantly mourn him. You can't change who you are and you can't be who you know that you are, who God has said you are until you know who that is and until you believe who that is. You know, you could be a CEO or a missionary or a pastor's wife, you know, wife to a very anointed man and daughter of a very powerful woman, and you're the loudest person in the room, but sometimes you feel like you have absolutely nothing to say. Until you, abs- until you understand what God says about who you are and you believe it and you refuse to let the fear, the, the things that people say about you, the thing, well, honestly, it's not even what they say about you. That's the thing sitting on their shoulder whispering in their ear about who you are or it's, you know, the thing sitting on your shoulder whispering who you are not that is what really defines you. And this will all become, all of these themes will weave themselves throughout as we talk each week. Um, and you'll see more about how this destructive pattern affects Saul as a young boy named David enters it. Tune in next, okay, the week after next week to hear more about David. So let's pray about our identities real quick. You guys want to stand up with me? Jesus. God, would you speak to us right now? Would you tell us who we are? We want to hear your words, Father God. We want to hear hear you speak over us, our identity. Not just our calling, Lord God, but the person who we are. We don't want to be like Saul. We don't want to get confused and think that our, our identity is our calling and we never actually take it on as our mantle, Father. We ask right now. I ask right now that you would give every single person in this room such a deep affection, such a deep love just poured all over them that their their knowledge of who they are 
will just propel them into the destiny to which they are called, will propel them into the thing that, they've, that has been the desire of their heart, propel them into the thing that has been spoken over them since they were, they were young, the thing that was spoken over them yesterday, the thing that they are called to step into, and the power that they were meant to walk in right now, Jesus. Father, we ask for your identity to fall right now. Jesus, give us a true revelation of who you are so we can have a true revelation of who we are. Jesus, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. 